Welcome to Creative Vengeance. I'm your host, Arne Schnach. Yeah, this is the first episode, so I think I need to tell you a bit about the background of this podcast and what it's going to be about. If you're only here to listen to Marcelo, you need to bear with me or you need to skip fast forward. I'll try to make it quick, though. When you work in advertising like I do, you know great ideas die all the time. Creative Vengeance will portray people who have made a habit of bringing ideas to life. And by that, I think they get the satisfaction of proving the critiques wrong over and over again. The reason to do this podcast, to be honest, is mainly selfish. I like exchange with other people. I like learning from their experiences. So by putting that into a format, I am forcing myself to sit down with interesting people on a regular basis. I'm forcing myself to prepare those conversations. And in the end, this is a project to educate myself further. So maybe it teaches you something as well. I studied graphic design and graduated in 2008. For my master's degree, I made a book about the cultures of the world's most creative agencies. Marcelo was the first person I interviewed for my book. And after him, I talked to guys like Alex Bogusky, Jerry Graff, Rich Silverstein, John Haggerty, and a couple more. By visiting those agencies, and especially by talking to their creative leaders, I learned a lot. Having that in mind, I decided to create this podcast. Um, I might re-release those interviews I did as special episodes on this podcast at some point. We'll see. I can't remember how good the sound quality was. Not because it's so long ago, more because I think I had a shitty recorder back then. Little side note. I pretty soon realized that the DNAs of those agencies I met from my book were pretty close to what GGK had put into rules. I looked them up again. Appoint a creative to the chief executive position. Make quality the most important goal. Don't worry about profit. Tell the client the truth, even if it means losing the account. And fire clients that want bad advertising. Pretty strong rules. Not always easy to stick to those rules, I guess. Makes a lot of sense to me. But, yeah, who am I to judge other agencies? I just think that when you look at agencies who have been successfully around for a while, it seems like they have kind of the same rules, I guess. GGK was the first creative agency in Germany. And that's also where Marcelo started his career. He told me after we finished the podcast that he still believes GGK was the best agency he has ever worked for. What I like about working in advertising is a lot of disciplines come together. You work with designers, writers, directors, musicians, artists, actors, tech people and entrepreneurs, of course. I met so many interesting people through my job and for this podcast I am going to revisit some of those people I have worked with in the past and I'll try to get people on the mic that I'm going to meet through work in the future. So it's also going to be some kind of personal journal. Most people I want to talk to don't speak German. So even though I'm from Germany and I live and work in Berlin, this podcast is going to be in English. How often am I going to put out new episodes? Not every week, that's for sure. 
I don't have the time, unfortunately. But I'll be happy if I make 10 episodes a year. For now, for the beginning, I'll try to put out at least one episode a month. We'll see how it goes. So here comes the pilot I did with Marcelo. It was recorded two months ago, pretty spontaneously. I was heading to Hawaii for a vacation shortly before I had the idea to launch this podcast. And since Marcelo lives in Hawaii, I texted him, asked him if he wanted to be my first guest again. And he said yes. So here we are. I think it is amazing how well he points things out and already by preparing for meeting Marcelo, I realized that he saw and addressed some issues we're facing today, years ago already. So far for the introduction, congratulations, you made it. Or congratulations, you skipped to the right point in the timeline. <laughs> Now, enjoy what the big guy had to say. Thank you very much, Marcelo, for taking the time to do this. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We talked for a book that I did 11 years ago. It's uh, kind of scary how quick time goes by. And now it's April the 17th, 2019, and we're sitting in your studio at the North Shore of Oahu. You moved here three years ago? Three years ago, exactly. I think most of the listeners will know who you are. But anyways, I'm, I'm going to give a brief introduction. First of all, you, you studied in Germany? Yeah, that's, I, I studied in Germany and then I started. My first job was in Munich. And then I later on, when I finished, I went to Düsseldorf and, and worked there for GGK for two years. At GGK, you met Wilfred? Yeah. He was your copywriting partner for a time, I guess? Yeah, we were young. I, I was a graphic designer, then it became kind of kind of a junior art director and we met together in the same group of people that we were working together for IBM and Wilfried was a copywriter already and a junior copywriter and we did a lot of work together and we became very close friends and very good partners. That's how I know you because Wilfried was teaching at the University of Düsseldorf and I was his student. Yeah, we also became good friends. It's also a while ago now since I graduated, also more than 10 years. Everybody's getting old. Yeah, if it doesn't feel like it, then it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, it doesn't feel like it, exactly. <laughs> then in 1993, you took over a small agency? It was, the, um, I, came, I came from the UK direct to work in Brazil. I worked at DPZ in Rio de Janeiro, this is my hometown. Then I moved after one year. The market in Rio is really small. A nice, it's a great city, but not not for advertising actually. And then I moved to São Paulo to DPZ, and after DPZ I went to DM9. In 1993, I I moved to Alma BBDO, and it's not it was not a small agency. It was an agency kind of in decay because they are losing clients, and the whole advertising scene in Brazil was moving and changing very fast. They have agencies from like DM9, like W Brazil from Washington Oliveto doing great work and changing even the PZ or changing the landscape with fresher work. And our map was kind of a old style, old agency, and they were in danger of losing a lot of clients. So we came in as partners. We took over the agency with BDO. And that was 1993. Mm -hmm. Then you created an agency that turned out to be 
pretty successful, legendary, and you also kind of changed advertising in Brazil and also influenced the whole advertising scene uh, throughout the whole globe, I guess. And thank you. Um, Good to know that. <laughs> yeah. For Wilfried, I was working at Almap uh, for a short time in 2006. So whoever I met also outside of that agency, people um, had a lot of respect. I never heard anybody say a bad word about that agency or, or also about you. And to me, this is really special. Thank you. In the year of 2000, I think you were the youngest Ken Lyons president ever. Yeah. Um, at that time, it was just two categories or three mm -hmm. categories. The, the new uh, web design category, web, web category, uh, and then press and poster and TV. What's okay, that changed a lot. <laughs> That's changed a lot. Um, now it's... Uh, now we have 20, 20 jury presidents, 35 categories, and so on. It's, it's changed it, it completely. It takes so long to submit the work, and then you see, okay, really? We're entering this into 15 categories? Yeah. And, uh, that's a crazy game. So I'm skipping fast forward to the year of 2015. I read a post that you did on Facebook, which basically um, said you were retiring or quitting the ad industry. To me, it was a pretty emotional statement. It was a very well-written text, and you referred to that story of, of Tolstoy. If I can sum it up correctly, it's about a guy who makes a deal with the devil. The devil says, all the way that you walk, uh, the, everything that you pass by will be your land, but one thing, you need to be back when the sun sets. So that guy walks that way and then at uh, noon when the sun is the highest he thinks okay i should go back now but i'll make some more miles and then i run back so finally he makes it to sunset but he drops dead right away when he arrives yeah that's exactly a that's it. pretty um, interesting story and very smart move and brave move to quit um, at that point when you were at, probably at the peak of, of your career it was um, two things about that. First, this tale from Tolstoy, I, I read it and I'm fast, I was always fascinated about Tolstoy and read everything he wrote uh, since I'm 25 years old. So I got this one when I was 29, becoming 30. And I read this and I was in the middle of my struggle of doing stuff and working 12 hours a day. And, and I look at that and say, oh, this makes a lot of sense, but not now. It will make a lot of sense later on. And then put in my mind kind of a virus or an idea that maybe when I'm around 50, I should move and do something else. Because I think it's when you go to, the, <laughs> to this land and you make the pact with the devil, you have to know that you have enough condition, stamina, to stop and go back and do all the way back. Otherwise, you're going to die very soon. So this whole idea of knowing how much land you need or how much do you need to get happy or to have a fulfilled life. So the, the measurement of what you get, what you need and what you want, you have to be very careful about the measurements. Mm -hmm. And that's all the whole idea behind this, this tale. And I said to myself, so one day I'm going to come back to this idea. So when I was around 50 and uh, when I was 45 and I was doing so well, I got the Clio Life Achievement Award when I was 40, 44, 45. And I said, hmm, 
uh, one day I'm going to quit. And the measurement or the idea, or the point when I should quit is when I start losing the drive, the slight motif in German, the drive to do what I would, was doing. Because mm -hmm. I was doing easily. I was doing for fun. I was enjoying myself doing this. Mm -hmm. I, I was laughing. I'm doing this with a smile on my face. When the smile starts to disappear and things become repetitive or boring or uh, it, when it becomes a struggle, then it's time to lose, it's time to quit. And for two reasons. First, for yourself, because you don't get fulfillment from what you're doing. You're just doing for, your, for the sake of doing this. Uh, second, for the partners, for the shareholders, for the company, if you lose your passion and you disguise it and you kind of go on just for, the, for doing this, you are being unfair. It's like a Formula One driver. Mm. If you start feeling that you have to, you don't push your foot, you don't push your, the pedal deeper, and it, then you're going to lose the race. And you're going to lose races, and then you have the shareholders of the race company and so on, and you have a responsibility to those guys as well. So I start losing the grip, I start losing the, uh, the passion, more or less. And then I decided to say, okay, I've around 50, 55 max, I'm going to quit. And I'm not quit the agency. I'm not, I was not sad of Alma Map or the work I was doing, so let's start something new. Uh, no, I was sorry, I'm going to quit the job and doing something else and look for something else outside the business that can fulfill myself, where I can actually learn something new, start a, start a new, which is a challenge in myself. So I have to challenge myself to do something completely different and start again. Mm. And that's what I did. So I planned it and I left. Mm. Was it an easy step to take or did mm. you struggle? Uh, is that the right decision? Uh, when you have in your head, when, when the decision is made, it's easy. Mm. To make a decision is the complicated part, it's the most difficult part. I think the detachment, because it's not easy, it's an ego thing. You have to, you get kind of, you get away from your ego because it's much more easy. It's easier to stay in the agency and reap the fruits of your reputation, mm. of your work that you have done. Say, ah, oh, you are a legend, oh, you are a great guy, you changed Brazilian advertising. And, uh, I, could, I could live 10, 15 more years mm. based on that. Go to meetings, make kind of appearances, talk, uh, seem smart, uh, say nice quotes, make speeches all over the world, go to advertising festivals and uh, be Jewish presidents and talk in Panama, talk in the US, talk in, in, in France, uh, represent the agency and be part of Omnicom as a board member, which I was, and then BBDO. And you can, you can fulfill your life with this kind of stuff. And you can actually live 15 to 20 years more. Yeah. Then what happened? I'm going to live from the 50s to the 70s unfulfilled, driven by my ego, or driven by the, the comfort of my reputation. Or say, okay, have my name, and I can live with, for my name, and that's it. And I think, ah, it's going to be cheating somehow. Yeah. And I didn't like that. So I was driven always by my 
by the fun inside of me. And if the fun is not there, I will look somewhere else. And I was very selfish all the time. And I remember we had a fight uh, between two partners a long time ago. And one of the partners said to me, you are selfish. You only think about yourself. You're not thinking about the uh, health of the company. It's like, you're, this is the first time that we agree on something really 100%. If I'm not happy, it's not good for the company. So I work while I'm happy. If I'm not, I take my hat mm-hmm. and go do something else. And the company wants won't suffer if I don't if I, I'm fair enough to find some good replacement that I work not against the company but for the company and I just taking care of myself and then I leave. So mm-hmm. that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Still, I think very smart, also very brave, and most people would have probably picked the other way and just enjoyed the status that they achieved and yeah. um, uh, more probably um, it's going to be easier and i i don't i don't i don't condemn or judge anybody because i think this is the natural way of doing things you keep yourself you keep this but i'm i'm not a company mm. i'm and i'm not a name i have something else mm. in my mind behind that but it depends also i mean what makes it easier is when you have other passions that you want to follow exactly you know and uh, of course advertising you work many hours and um, then at some point there's not much time for anything besides that and so you need to make time for yourself to do other things that you enjoy so what made you move to hawaii yeah You talk very, you're very right about talking about the other passions. Uh, I always have advertising not as a final goal, but as a tool. And the tool to develop stuff or to exercise what makes me happy, which is creativity, was create stuff or design stuff. Or I could be a designer, I could be an architect, I could be an industrial designer, I could design chairs, I could have done just logotypes for banks, whatever. But I'm always in this kind of environment. Advertising was just a nice, fantastic way to produce stuff very fast and very big and that everybody could see. So it's a huge canvas for creativity. And I I really enjoy the game and I love it. But it, for me, it was just a tool. It was not the end goal. So... Quitting advertising was not that difficult because I was always doing stuff like design logos or painting, drawing. Uh, I had surfing and I have a lot of interest. I love reading and doing stuff. So I can, I, I always had a very big life beside, uh, on the side of advertising. So I never quit what I love about other stuff because of advertising. Maybe I had less time or less less um, yeah, less time to practice or to do, but I still I still I was still doing stuff. So when I quit advertising, I I said to myself, we came to Hawaii a couple of times for surfing. I always did once in a year a surf trip to Fiji, to Maldives, to Indonesia, always traveling and surfing. Surfing, traveling for a week or for two weeks or maybe four weeks at a time uh, and I love surfing I surfed since I'm 10 years old so I'm from Rio so what's fantastic I love it surfing and then uh, we came to Hawaii a couple of times and then one day I came back to Brazil and 
I had a really bad week, the week that we came in Brazil. It was raining all the day long, all day long, a lot of traffic jams. The clients were complaining about some weird stuff. I got calls from Volkswagen, from any, any other clients complaining about the stuff and we have to produce a campaign very fast. And that kind of made me remind of Leo Tostoy again. And then I went to internet and it's like, how much is it gonna cost a piece of land in Hawaii? Just for the curiosity. And then I found this, it's wow, the currency, the way the currency was in Brazil, uh, it's really affordable. Sometimes even cheaper than anything you can find in Brazil. Then I start the process of looking for a piece of land. And it was in end of January, beginning of February. In April, I was back in Hawaii and I bought a piece of land where we are sitting now. Nice. And was kind of, I didn't thought much about it, was not planned, just out of a feeling that I got. And I bought a piece of land, then I met an architect, I started building a house, and then we started discussing the family. Really like that. If we, maybe we can actually make a sabbatical or move to Hawaii for one year, and you have a piece of land, I have a beautiful house, we can rent, we can sell it later on, we're gonna make a lot of profit, the currency gonna change, it's gonna be a good investment. You can talk, you can talk a lot of stuff in it. Mm -hmm. And then I built a house, and then I was starting the process of, together with my partner, Jose Luis, we, I talked to him, you know, something, I think it's time to leave. And there is, you know when it's time to leave, when you make a couple of questions to yourself. Uh, how is the economy going to be? In a country like Brazil, it's really important to make that question because the variation of the economy are very high and low, and it's not like in Europe and the US, which is kind of stable, but in Brazil it's like a it's like a roller coaster. You can go up and go down. So let's look at the economy, let's look at the clients that we have, let's look at the context that we have, let's look of the deep inside of us what is gonna change and are we gonna to be part of the change? Are you you have the passion to go through it all over again? Or it's time to move on. And then the Leon Tostoy Tail came to my mind again. I look at all the stuff that I really want to do beside advertising and said, and I look at my bank account. Is does the bank account support my dreams? Yeah. And can I do it? Can I not do it? Can I find something else? Or can I have maybe two or three years to figure out what I want to do in my life and maybe come back to advertising in a different mm -hmm. perspective, yeah. in a different environment? So let's give my let's give myself time to think about it and to reflect, to kind of uh, move, make my shake my body and challenge me not to be in the comfortable position of being Marcelo Serpa or mm -hmm. this guy. So then we made a move. We sold my sold my agency, sold my part of the agency, and. I finished the house and then we decided, let's move to Hawaii for one year, one year and a half. Joanne and my wife start studying social science and then sociology here in Hawaii. And we found out that the life here is amazingly amazing. It's so good. And the whole, the whole change in behavior in the move from Sao Paulo, this huge city, to a small part in an island, mm -hmm facing the most beautiful beaches with the best waves in the world so I can surf every day. 
and I can challenge myself to do something completely different. And then we are loving it. And about changing and challenging yourself, I remember people in Brazil from the advertising industry say, ah, Marcelo stopped. Um, he retired. He's not doing anything. No, I'm not doing anything. I stopped advertising. And that those guys are the ones, even in the press and so on, they think advertising is, is everything. Mm -hmm. Everything is just, advertising is just a small piece of a huge uh, economy of a huge stuff that you can do. Just a small universe mm -hmm. inside many other universes. So I came here and I challenged myself to be not the famous advertising guy, but the the surfer on the low on the low pyramid of the social life, social pyramid, I'm the lowest. So I go to learn how to surf Sunset Beach when it's 12 feet high or 15 feet. Uh, I go to learn why, surf Waimea, surf the big Hawaiian waves. And is this, I'm challenging myself when I'm 55 to do stuff that I was not supposed to do. Yeah. So it's for me really challenge. Yeah. And to paint, which mm -hmm. was a passion for me as always. Yeah. And to learn it and do it right. About surfing, to me that's very interesting because at some point I saw the first pictures of you surfing. Um, I think was it was at Rocky Point. The beautiful picture of you with the red board. I said, okay, that looks like a decent wave. And those beaches here at the North Shore are the most famous beaches. To me, it's interesting. You achieved everything in the advertising industry, and then you like surfing, and you didn't pick calm, chilly spot where you could ride uh, small longboard waves. You went to the North Shore, and um, also here, you need to gain some respect from, from the locals, I guess, to be part of that um, scene or crowd. And last Sunday was Sunday morning, 8 a.m. Sounds early for um, German standards, <laughs> or probably also for Brazilian standards, but here, life starts earlier. So Sunday morning, 8 a.m., You invited me to be part of that apnea training, so the breathing training that especially I think the big wave surfers, but also other surfers do, to improve um, their skills. And so we did that together and um, did it the first time. You did it a couple of times before and it's pretty tough. I mean, it was a lot of fun because there weren't any waves trying to kill us. It was <laughs> smooth water. I was watching you and we were supposed to have those dumbbells, walking with the dumbbells underwater. I made 10 steps before I thought I was dying and then I went up to, to breathe and you did 30, 35. So you're pretty good at what you're doing also. <laughs> and again, you didn't pick the easy path. I never, I, I didn't pick the easy path. I don't, that's why, that's all about it. I didn't pick the easy path. I want, I want to do it because it's, I love doing this because surfing is something that I really like. I really love it. And I say, okay, let's go to the North Shore. Let's go where things are heavy. If you, if you are in advertising, I go to the big agency, I go to, to the big guys, I want to learn from those guys. So I'm an I'm average surfer, but I'm 56, I'm doing, I'm surfing the good waves, the good wave, big waves for me, and I train with the big guys and with the good guys, and I'm trying training so that I can do it. Because if you cannot train, if you don't train, you can't do it. So Uh, I really love doing this, but for me it's a challenge. And I feel really comfortable in the water when I'm surfing sunset and I met all the guys, my neighbors, professional surfers, amateurs, older guys, younger guys. And they treat me like one of the guys 
from the North Shore. Mm -hmm. And that's for me amazing. It's really good. And I feel wonderful. Uh, and I feel more comfortable now than I would be in Cannes, mm -hmm. for instance. Yeah. So it, it's, it's great. And at the same time, I have my studio here where I can practice and, yeah. and paint all day long, which makes me really, really happy. Mm -hmm. Painting is one of your passions. Might that become a second career for you? Yes. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call a career yet. But you know, when I, when I came to Germany, I played with the idea of becoming an artist. So I went to Kunstakademie in Munich, the Art Academy in Munich, and I remember exactly the day I went there. And I met the guy, director of the Academy, and he looked at my work. I was 18 years old with all my drawings and so on. It's like, I like the work, but you have to practice more free stuff. Your work, you try to make everything so accomplished. And I like to see that roughs, the drawings, and the animal instinct stuff. And say, okay, it made a lot of sense at the time. I didn't know that. So I was preparing to, to do this. And say, okay, let's, uh, I'm going to come back in, in August, I remember. It was end of July or August. And sit be, be in front of a kind of a group of directors. And I have to show my work and talk to them. And they're going to accept me or not. It's very... It was the idea behind it. And I was ready to do it. And then the guy told me, I have a Brazilian student here. It would be nice if you can meet him. And I came to see the guy. I don't remember his name. I never met him again. But I, it was very cold. It was January. And I was preparing myself. I'm going to go in the Kunst Academy, Art Academy. I'm going to be an artist. And then I met the guy. And the guy was a very nice Brazilian. He was in a huge room painting his exhibition that he's going to do in, in maybe three or four months from that time. And I asked him a couple of questions. The first one was, how long are you here? So I'm mine 11th semester, something like this. 11th semester. I made the calculation very fast. Oh, it's, oh, it's quite, it's five and a half years. And then I look at the paintings. And he was painting everything in green, yellow, and blue, and white. Brazilian colors, and it was everything, a lot of flags, good stuff, really good stuff, but all Brazilian related. And I look at that, it's like, my goodness, I got the inside. The guy spent five and a half years, and the only thing he's painting is, is that he missed Brazil. And it's like, oh, I'm going to do the same here, or is this the path that I'm looking for? I spent five and a half years in Germany, cold, distant from home, distant from Rio, and then paint Brazilian flags. And I came home and I, I was very uncomfortable. The next day I had a meeting with uh, uh, designers and the guys from U5 in Munich, and I saw posters. I went to a design exhibition in the Deutsche Museum, huge exhibition of posters and political posters, industry posters, uh, the early advertising posters. And I look at that and it's like, oh, that's fascinating me. And then, and then I decided to move from pure art, pure art to angewandte Kunst, mm -hmm. the art, applied art. And I've, I love the move, so create something for someone, and not just painting my, my 
meine Sehnsucht. Ne? <lacht> and then I, I decided to go into design. And then advertising became kind of a consequence of that because I had a couple of chances to work in advertising to make some money on the side. And I loved the thrill of it. I loved the, uh, the speed of you have to deliver something. You have to be creative in very, you have five hours to deliver something. Give me a good idea. Come. Mm -hmm. uh, and make it beautiful, make mm -hmm. it look beautiful. Uh, and I had all the tools to make stuff beautiful. And I love it. And then that's what happened. Then I moved to advertising. So now that I, and I always was drawing and always looked a lot, of, a lot of art in my work. And as art director, I always been, been surrounded by stuff and visual stuff and always developed my, my own style. And I start painting from the beginning, always on the side on weekends, painting. And I'm not a, a accomplished painter, but I like to do it. I like to work and I develop my own style, my own work. So it's going to be a second career, maybe. Uh, I'm selling some stuff. I made an exhibition last year in New York. I was invited by Up Art and uh, Thais. She has a very nice concept of making exhibitions in different apartments with huge parties and so really she makes huge stuff out of it and she called me it's like I love your work you like to make an uh, exhibition ah in Sao Paulo no 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 let's make it in New York <laughs> so oh that's once again if you do it do it right so go to New York and I put myself on display mm -hmm. and I sent 15 paintings and I sold 10 of it 10 of them and I was happy. I was really happy. I was challenging myself. Okay, let's see if that works. And then I came back and every single painting I do, I'm learning something else. Yeah. So I'm getting better painting by painting. So I have time to do it. I'm going to do it for the rest mm -hmm. of my life. If that's become a career, maybe. I'm selling a lot of paintings by internet. So people come to my, my Instagram page and send me a message. I send a price. Mm. And some people buy it. Some people don't. But and some friends asked me for painting. This painting that I'm doing here right now is for a family in Hawaii. She, they asked me if I could do it. I do it. And I get paid for that. So it's nice. Sounds great. Yeah. Sounds great. I mean, what you said about advertising, to me, this is one thing that I really like. So many disciplines come together. Yeah. You have the chance to deal with a different subject very often. Exactly. So, I like music. I play in a band, not successfully, of course, but uh, that's that's one of my passions. And so music plays a big role in whatever we do. And I'm a graphic designer, so that's a big part. And then I like ideas and then I like stories. And so all comes together. And like you said, you have clients that give you the funding to create all the stuff that you're interested in. And, and you don't have to deal with it for four or five years. It's a couple of months and then there's the next thing. And that's, uh, that's very interesting. And I like with every project, I mean, uh, most of the time when I finish something, I said, okay, I could have done this better and that better. Uh, but that is not frustrating to me because, like, okay, I learned something. It's, so it means there's progress. And what you're saying about painting, it's the same thing. You draw one picture. And you draw a picture, I learn something else and I do the next one with this improvement in my mind and I'm, I'm getting better by each painting. Mm -hmm. And I notice the difference and I, I like seen it happen and I'm I have a nice exercise in my ego and all my the necessities of my ego are already fulfilled for my previous mm -hmm. career so I don't have this urge to be 
recognized yeah. as, a, as an artist. Mm -hmm. It might happen one day, it might not. Yeah. I don't care. I just mm -hmm. paint it. And some people like my paintings and some people ask me for to mm. doing stuff. I just finish a I just finish a, a assignment of a handkerchief that someone is printing in Brazil, a company is printing in Brazil, and and they said, Can I have a pattern for mm. a handkerchief? So okay, let's do it. And I, I make it. Mm -hmm. So a poster for the Montreux Jazz Festival in, in Rio. Oh. Then so can you do it? Okay, I do it, and I so I, I'm always producing. It's always with my style, my mm -hmm. my style of working, and so on. And I I enjoy doing stuff. Mm -hmm. So always producing stuff, and I'm painting every single day. I have my canvas here. I'm painting something. I recognize that when you refer to yourself and your profession, you used to say you're an art director. And of course you are, but a lot of people, it's also an ego thing, I guess, who achieved, who are CCOs or whatever, they don't call themselves a designer or an art director. They're something bigger, you know? And Because, yeah, they, this is more important to them mm -hmm. than the craft. Uh, the craft was always fundamental for me, and the craft brought me there to a position that everybody could, anyone could fill. So anyone can be a shift grade officer, anybody. Can be uh, CEO. I'm, this is those jobs are uh, not direct related to someone. I like to be a good art director. The people can recognize. I like this work. I like his work. I like the this, the work he has done. It's not related to my job. I'm, I don't care if I'm board board chairman whatever. This is for me so unimportant. Mm -hmm. I was never the CEO of Almap. Was partner of OMAP. And I'm creative director. And even creative director for me was a title. But I, I'm an art director. I'm creative. I'm a designer. I was, I would die a designer. Yeah. I won't die as a CEO. <laughs> <laughs> During your time in, in the agency, can you say how much time did it take to take care of the management stuff and how much time you spent on being creative? The the last years, the time being creative was becoming less and less. I was always doing stuff for some certain clients that I really liked doing, doing like Havaianas and so. But the management part became kind of very important. And the bigger the agency and the bigger your team, you have this management skills became very important. But I never had the job of... Uh, being worldwide creative director or regional creative director because it would mean taking time from what I like to be in the kitchen and help cook or help people cook better. So I was in the kitchen all the time because I was in the middle of the creative department. So I watched all the work and I let people work and then I say, oh, okay, let's sit together and see what's, what came out of it. And then we decide what to do together. But I, I at the end, became kind of boring, so this all management stuff. But I tried to be in the kitchen as much as I could, as much as I could. I was never, never one of those guys that are just sitting in boardrooms in the meetings. Mm -hmm. I, I try as much as I could to get out of those guys, of these titles and 
I didn't like much to be all in, in this huge, I was invited all the time to be even the chairman of this festival somewhere else. Oh, let's be this and this. At the end, I was saying, no, 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 no. It would take me from the job or from the kitchen and take you out from my family or from home. And I didn't like much. Mm -hmm. So you were talking about the kitchen. What's the best way to motivate creatives to do great work? Mm. Good question. It's a million dollar question. I think the best way to motivate people is setting the standards very high, but not unreachable. Uh, and setting the standards high, not meaning that it's something that's outside, you have to win uh, the Grand Prix in Cannes. Because if you set those standards, you're going to crash people. It's not about winning the Grand Prix in Cannes. It's doing a work that you say, yeah, it is this. That, that's Let's make me so thrilled to see this kind of work. Let's make it big. Let's, let's dare something. Let's go to the client and with so much passion to approve a stuff that we wouldn't think this is going to be possible for this client or for this, or for this product or whatever. And that's the truth of doing something completely new for the first time. And that's for me, this is how to motivate people. And you motivate people when you're not sitting there and saying, yes, no. Yes, no, yes, no. When you see the guys, oh, let's do it this. And if you do this, and you can do this. Or pushing this a little bit in this direction. Well, let's, let's do it and see if it works or not. So passion and positive, proactive stuff. So let's produce, let's make, let's, let's do it. Not so much like, oh, no, I don't think those, mm -hmm. these reach the standards of this agency. Mm -hmm. So if you go into it as, as playful as possible, uh, then you set the standards high and you motivate people. But if you start making yourself so important uh, and the work and the agency is so important that people feel kind of under pressure to deliver in a, in a bad way, then you lose, you lose the people mm. and people get stuck. So, and it's good to be helpful if you do stuff as well. Mm -hmm, then course. if you do stuff as well, people are going to look and say, oh, oh, nice. And then you help someone do a beautiful stuff. And the guy on his side, they're going to look at this like, oh, this is great. And then, so people motivate themselves. So the environment helps people mm -hmm. to be their best mm. or produce their best. I um, got promoted to become a creative director a few years ago. And so the job changes, of course. Yeah. You work more with teams than just with your partner. One thing that uh, frustrated me was I realized that some people need a different motivation because to me, I mean, you don't need to shout at me. I want to do the best work that I can do for myself. I don't care what people think. I mean, if somebody likes it, it's good. But if I like it, then exactly. that's yes. good to me. So I like to sit with people and talk about ideas and to try to get the same vision. And then sometimes it happens that people They come back and they have nothing. And then you say, okay, maybe I didn't explain it right, or maybe it's just uh, doesn't make sense what I'm saying. And then I realized those people are the people you need to shout at. I, I would never, I, I couldn't do that, but then uh, I, I was kind of mean to them. And the next day they came and they had something decent. And I thought, wow, I need to treat those guys like shit in order to produce great work. That's not the people I want to work with. Mm, that's true. I. I didn't like to treat anybody like shit, and I never 
as far as I know, in my standards, maybe people can say, ah, they treat me like shit. I don't remember treating people like shit. But I, I never go after the guys. I go after work. If someone brings me or brought me stuff that I didn't like, and say, ah, the work is not good. This is not good. I never said you are lazy or you haven't done this stuff. Or It's not about the people. It's not about... And I was really as honest as I could and as transparent as I could. And if I was mean, I was mean to the work. Really mean to the work. And maybe sometimes I have two or three copyrights. I remember once I had two copyrights, two of the best copyrights Brazil ever produced working together in the same assignment. And I have to choose 10 scripts to present the client. And I have many scripts in front of me. And I choose nine from one guy and just one for the other guy. And I did it without criticizing the work. I just did it. And the other guy got so upset, the guy had just won. He complained. And I said, what do you want me to do? if I like nine pieces on those old guys better than the, the other stuff. Maybe the one you, you made is going to win. I don't know. But the guy brought me nine pieces that I loved. What should I do? Should I be complacent? Should I be nice to you? Should I respect your feelings? Or should I... What should I do? And he looked at me, what will you do? You go for the work or you go for yourself. And then he got upset, but he, he, he learned something. And I remember that exactly. And this is for me very important to be not complacent to people, so to the work. And maybe call the guy later on and say, what's happening? Why, is it, why you, don't, you don't feel like it? Are you feeling bad or is something else? Or is something happening that you want to share? Then we can discuss. And then I can be uh, kind of paternalist, which is very Brazilian stuff, very mm -hmm. emotional. We go emotional very fast. Mm -hmm. And I, that's why people get so upset and we get no. And I said, I was on the work. It's not about you. I'm not treating you badly. I'm not raising my voice. I'm not getting upset. I just say, the work's not good. Let's do it again. And next. And that's it. And I think it is sometimes more cruel than shouting to someone, but is at least more honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you train the talents in your agency? Uh, I don't train anymore because I'm out of the business. But yeah. I, what I would love to do is to have young guys sitting together when the big guys are creating stuff. And they learn how they work. And they learn how, how it feels and how people come out with ideas or how ideas have been developed. And I gave them all the possibilities of doing good stuff. And with a good, a big assignment, I put the young guys together so they get the size of the project and they can develop stuff and bring me fresh stuff as well. Because younger guys can bring stuff that is unrelated to something that's happening in, in Britain 20 years ago or mm -hmm. whatever. So I like, I like to have this fresh stuff. I always like it. So I put people, I always put young people uh, not in charge, but together with the big guys to learn. Mm -hmm. And I always treated them very, 
I put it as close as possible to the big stuff, and they learn very fast. Mm -hmm. You also sent two guys that enough to the Berlin School. Yep. Uh, when Michael Conrad, Michael Conrad was at my home in Sao Paulo a long time ago, and we have dinner, and we became very good friends in the past. And so he came every time he came to Sao Paulo, we we had dinner together. And he told me about the idea of Berlin School, and, so, and I talked to him, you know, I'm going to send the first, the first, you have already a student. So he say, I always say that the first student I sent him was Luis, which now is my replacement. It's the guy who is running on map now, and he's doing very successfully and very well. Uh, and I, I, because I lived in Germany seven years, because I, I had a chance to live inside a completely different culture than myself, in a very young age, I always thought it's brought me so, it opened so many doors in my mind about different possibilities that you are not stuck in your mentality of being Brazilian and isolated in our whole system and way of doing things. It helped me so much that it formed my personality, formed my way of working, this German discipline, the German coherence. Uh, right? This mm -hmm. is the German word I love the most, is that you're, you have to have cause and you have to have a reason to do stuff and why are you doing this? You have to be consistent. This is consistency in the German way of thinking that helped me a lot in this chaotic Brazilian environment. So if I mix both, I, I think I found a good balance that worked for me. So uh, the moment I always uh, keen and uh, I always want to help people develop this new, open these new windows in their minds. So when Michael came to me and said, I'm going to be the open, I'm going to open the a school for creative leadership out of Berlin, I said, okay, you, you count on me, you're going to have the first one. And so I sent Luis, and then I sent a couple of guys from, from us. And I could see how they flourished. I could see how they start seeing things in the different way, how they kind of learn how to be bigger than themselves, or bigger than Brazil allowed them to be. Because if you live in a country like Brazil, if you live in a country like Argentina, you're kind of isolated in a universe that speaks Portuguese, listens to Brazilian music, has the values that... And then you go outside and say, oh, 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 how people behave differently, why? And what's, why are the people doing this? They have no clue how they come to this. And then the moment they start going around and seeing Japanese, Germans, uh, French, how if they mix together, they work together in projects and they learn how the things are being done in different cultures and countries, they, they get better. They get much better. So I sent a couple of guys and it was really, really helpful. Were you ever afraid that if you send your best guys to that school and there's... I wasn't afraid. I lost a lot of guys. I lost so many guys doing this that I never stopped sending the guys. Uh, maybe most part of the game. I remember I sent two guys. I got I, this one I got pissed. I sent two guys to the building school, and then Crispin uh, Porter. I forgot the first name. Porter from Crispin Porter. Chuck Porter. Chuck Porter. 
gave a speech and two guys came to him and say, and they start discussing opening agents in Brazil. And a couple of months later, they came from the school. I paid the whole staff and they opened Christmas Pot in Brazil. Oh, really? Wow. Really. And I knew that the guys were actually talking to Chris Porter in the, in the, doing the course. So I got, I got pissed. I was, but I, I talked to the guys still now. So, I, okay, it's part of the game. I did it in the past. Mm. So I opened my agency as well. Mm. So, and I kind of, I saw it as well as a kind of, I wouldn't stop sending people there because they might, I might lose them. There's this old saying, you probably know it, when two guys talk and say, hey, we should invest in our people. And then the other guy says, yeah, but what if we invest in them and then they leave? And the first guy replies, yeah, but what if we don't and they stay? Exactly. Exactly. This is a very nice, very nice quote. And I saw it as a way of moving the waters. And I think it's kind of good to have good people around you. And if you send those guys and they do it for themselves, good for them. I remember when I left the M9 and opened my agency and I had to drive. Why shouldn't other people not have the drive? And maybe you can be selfish and say, I shouldn't help people have drive. I want to squeeze the most talent as I can. And if they are ignorant of the possibilities they have, the better for me. I think it's not fair. Mm. I don't want to do it because if someone, I think it's cheap, I think it's small, and I lost a couple of people, part of the game. Mm. They have the right to do it, and I'm happy they, they, I'm not happy they have done it, I, but I respect the way they did it, and I think it's part of the game. Yeah. I think we are in a business enough of making money and oh it's it's it, it has to be broader it has to be you have to make a company and if your company are so dependent of a guy that you send outside poor company mm -hmm. shit company you have mm -hmm. so you've sent guys you make this water movement you bring not the guys wants to work with you because you don't think small and you attract people that don't think small and if you attract people that don't think small your agents are going to be fantastic Absolutely. but you start thinking small stuff your work is going to be shit. Mm -hmm. Also, I think you as a person need to be out there and talk to other people to learn from their problems. And also you promote the company that you work for if that's a company that you like and that brings new people in. If you isolate people, you kind of isolate your, your own agency, right? Yeah, you're going to be small. You're going to be a little shitty agency. Mm -hmm. So you have to think about it. You have to, be, you have to think big. Mm -hmm. You have to think big. And you have to be... You have to think in uh, long term and in a bigger scale mm. of things and not be so, oh, oh mm. I'm going to lose this guy if I do this. Okay, lose the guy, find another one, train another one, mm. make another guy, do well, and then the, the circle go, yeah. ra go round yeah. and round and round and round. So it's mm. fine. Think big reminds me of something else I wanted to talk to you about. Remember that legendary print ad from VW, Think Small. The headline was Think Small, right, for the yep. Beatles. So then mm -hmm. it's kind of the when the so-called creative revolution took off. And I always appreciate when brands contributed something to 
culture and this ad in American culture of the 60s where everything had to be big actually to promote the, the thought of thinking small with a small car in that country where cars couldn't be big enough. That's brave. And last year, I think it was last year, every campaign or every piece of work that won in Cannes or won gold at least had to do something good for the world. So everything was about uh, making the world a better place. So to me, that's a weird trend, but I'm curious, what, what do you think about this? This is a very polemic issue, and I discussed this long, long time. I'm, I started uh, talking about this maybe five, six years ago, when I made a speech somewhere, and I put a slide about this. If every single company is saving the world, who is fucking it? Who is the asshole who is fucking it? So I I see a lot of hypocrisy in this, and I hate, hate when advertising is a tool for hypocrisy. And and it's being perpetuated all the time. All the brands, all the work is about being nice and good. People are not nice and good. People have bad feelings. People are people have uh, bad instincts, people have bad feelings, people behave badly, people have a weird sense of humor, people have, laugh about stuff that they shouldn't be laughing in a, in a political correct terms, but they are laughing at stuff that they shouldn't. Uh, people are human. Human beings are imperfect. Human beings are not saints. Human beings are not kind of Mother Teresa. And I don't like the way uh, people are kind of afraid of infuriating the social media and universe and get hammered by every single thing they, they say. I think it's, um, it's, for me, one of the worst things that happened in the last years is to make advertising so boring. You see all the films, is about inspiration yourself to be something better. Inspiration giving you the tools to be to make to change the the world, making you the making you the oh, whatever you you so name every it. Every brand became Nike, <laughs> and, but Nike is just do it. It's a it's a selfish proposition. Mm -hmm. Hell, Nike made a, a very nice campaign about be better. If you get out of your sofa and put on the sneakers, you uh, kind of fight the the lazy wolf that you have inside of you. So kill the wolf and run and get out, do something. Yeah. It's a kind of a be yourself. Be it's a little bit. Of, it's a very nice empowerment to be yourself, yeah, but, but not to save the the world by doing this. I mean, I can believe Nike because they always kind of did that kind of communication. And I think one of the very first things that they did is that they, of course, they wanted to motivate people to do sports. Of course, if people did more sports, they would buy more of their products, but that's, that's all that's, right. That's and, what and, advertising is yeah, all about. And they, but also they targeted women, I guess, to do more sports and nobody talked to women at that time. So I can believe Nike and that's honest because they built their brand like that, but I have a hard time believing all of the other brands that try to tap into those fields. I'm not against saving the world, but I just think, okay, I don't believe you. 
No, it, it is a pocket though. I don't like it. I don't like it either. I tell you one example, a concrete and real example. We have Volkswagen. Volkswagen launched a car in Germany that now launching in Brazil with the Polo, Blue Polo. And the Blue Polo was a car that was built lighter with a better engine, better filters, lighter tires, and its its emissions were maybe 15 to 20% less less emissions than the normal Polo. I'm talking about 15 20% less. Okay. Give this job, created this briefing come from the from the planning department. This briefing was discussed with the client. And the whole idea was Volkswagen trying to save the planet. And then you see then ads like, you know, the bird, hummingbird, kind of on the house, house proof, how do you mm -hmm. call it in English? I don't know. The, from the engine, when the, yeah. when the smoke get out of the car. Yeah. So you have the hummingbirds like this. You have this whole, you, you, the creative guys, they, they start doing a lot of stuff. And then... The client wants to Volkswagen, saving the planet, helping saving the planet, help yourself. You do save the planet doing this and so on. And I stop everybody and say, come on, guys. We're talking about 15%. It's not an electric car. It's 15%. It's not much. It's not huge. It's not one small thing that makes, oh, it's going to, this is a, it's a drop in the ocean. It won't solve anything. It's just... Nice way of, okay, you are doing something. And then I, I throw all the work in the garbage. And I say, let's work about 20%. How can we make it honest? And they, uh, someone bring, bring my, uh, a film, and I sold to the client, and I talked to the client, don't bullshit people. This is bullshit. This is just 15 to 20%. We shouldn't bullshit. We are not in the business of bullshitting. And then we produce a commercial, which is about a car, a, mm -hmm. a guy, a couple, that lives in a beautiful house, and he's showing the house to his friend, the best friend. The best friend says, oh, look at my house. Oh, you see the house? We don't have air conditioning. We have opening, the, the, the air comes from this side that keeps the house, we save a lot of energy. Oh, nice. We collect water from the, from the roof, from the rain, and so we, we don't use all the water we can have. The house doesn't, and this is my stove, this is the kitchen, that, and here's the garbage, and we recycle, and so on. Yeah. And then, and so, and this is my car, the Polo. And they say, 20% less, and so on. And that's it. It's honest. It is honest. This is honesty. But you can develop the same campaign, mm -hmm. doing, we are saving the planet. You have hummingbirds inside the engine. And you can do it. And lots of people will do this. And the client is going to love it. And this is what I'm seeing all the time. So I said, come on, you're not doing this. Was that before Dieselgate? Or? Much, much before Dieselgate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you know something. It's, it's something that drives. The honesty in advertising is so praised today. But if you look into the messages, the messages are not honest. Mm. Most of the messages are not honest. And I get kind of, I, I started getting angry. And doing the advertising festivals, I, I got angry. It's like, come on, guys. Come on, guys. This is not true. Mm -hmm. This is not. This is, this is not right. Mm -hmm. And 
it really pissed me off. For instance, if you look at the amount of companies that sell quality of life, that you have to enjoy life, you have to enjoy your family, you have to be with the different values mm -hmm. of life, you have to look and stop and smell the roses. Yeah. And a lot of people doing quality of life, and then those guys that approve the, com the, the concept were working 15 hours a day. They get, I have people that was clients, they were burnout by stress. Mm -hmm. And the, comp the companies that do it, it's kind of a cry yeah. for help. Last time we talked, 11 years ago, I think it was in the midst of the so-called digital revolution. And that was before Facebook got really big. I think it was around, but I can't remember using it at that time. Now social media is all over and it changed the way ad agencies work. So I wonder what your experience is with the way social media changed the work. And if you think that it's a good idea that creative agencies take care of whole social media accounts of their clients. I think it has changed completely because at the same time, it would be theoretically, it would be a fantastic thing to have social media. Why? Because you can target different audience with different content. So you can create uh, special content for young people, special content for middle ages or guys or, or for older people and you have um, more uh, technological people or more conservative, more liberal, you can actually target different contents and what's, what's happening nowadays. But the problem is, you are never isolated. If you create a, a film that's really kind of edgy for edgy people, these contents are going to jump to the main group as well and the people get really mad of the brand. They don't realize that this content is not for them. The content is was targeted for a young, edgy group. And that's the people see still see content as being spread to everybody. And the people complain. And people start complaining. So the clients get very conservative and so they produce nice stuff for edgy people. Nice touch for conservative edgy stuff for conservative people. So uh, the work became kind of a blend of nice feelings. That's why there's one of the reasons why everybody's going to save the world, because this is a message that everybody agrees. We have to save the planet, we have to be nice, we have to be nice to each other, we have to be fighting for a better world. What means a better world? Varies. But the message itself, it's, it's a blend vanilla ice cream. So everybody likes vanilla ice cream, nobody hates vanilla ice cream. So you spread vanilla ice cream all over the place, everybody's happy and so on. So, but you never go to the ginger flavors because you can piss off people. And that's, uh, for me, the problem with social media. It, at the same time, allows you to be very uh, segmented, but you cannot do it because the moment something goes to the other groups, you get banished or you get, you get trashed by the, by, the, by the social media and the clients get really afraid. So it's a problem. It's a huge problem. So uh, in the past, we have TV. You go to TV and you send a message. People get upset. They complain. People didn't like it. But it's part of the game. 
now everybody doesn't like has a voice so they can actually send a huge aggressive message to the clients and the clients are not used to get aggressive message about their brands they get really afraid every single client wants the their brands to be universal every single client thinks their brands are impeccable uh, never made a mistake the brands are polished perfect but to keep like this it's almost impossible if you produce any kind of content so it's it's a catch-22 you you don't know what to do so you cannot be edgy because you get trashed you could be edgy if you your message is going to be encapsulated in this small group but it will never happen mm-hmm. so it's a huge problem I don't mm-hmm. I'm a, I think social media in the whole revolution of internet social media is the worst that happened it was meant to be amazing, it was meant to be great. But human beings are what drive this kind of stuff. And social media has done more harm to our society than we ever could have imagined. Mm. Yeah, that's an even bigger topic, not just related to advertising, but yeah. also news. And uh, News and advertising have been mixed together mm-hmm. through social media because you don't have, you lost you lost the credibility of fact. You lost the division between what's news and what's advertising. Mm-hmm. You lost the, the line that separates uh, journalism from propaganda. The loss, the social media blurred all the lines. So everybody was embracing the death of traditional media. And the death of traditional media brought some uh, huge evil and monster which means opinion news. And opinion news is uh, being mixed together with facts. So you never know what's a fact, what is opinion, what is propaganda, what is being paid to change your point of view. So then you have this mess that we are in. It's the mess of Brexit, it's the mess of Trump, the Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duterte in Philippines, uh, it's the mess of the loss of credibility on the truth. And the truth is something that became kind of a opinion. Mm. And then you're in the mess we are in. Mm. So advertising, propaganda, the same rules that fuck advertising in that sense is fucking the news. Mm. Do you think advertising has gotten more complicated or more interesting? Depends on the point of view. It can be more interesting from the, from the point of view of the consumer because you can get uh, you get access to stuff through Instagram to Facebook that you actually you never have. So you, small products, small services, things that are really innovative that are being shown to you in a way in a very fast, and you can react and you can buy just pressing two buttons on your iPhone. I think it's from the point of view of the viewer, advertising became more interesting, more diverse, more engaging, because you know you can see advertising, you can engage, you can actually relate. I think the tools, uh, but for the for the guy that works in advertising, I think became less interesting for me at least. I think for young guys, I think it's going to be interesting because they they have been born into it. But I liked 
the bigger canvas. Mm -hmm. I like the canvas that we had on that you produce a content uh, for any brand. And you produce a huge campaign, you take two or three, four months, and then you put on every single media that available at a time, on TV and prime time, you put on billboards, you put on the in the in the buses, on the magazines, and in the internet, whatever. You have one single message, you have one big message, you have one big content, and everybody look and say, wow, I love it, I like it, I hate it. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of talk of the town. You start a campaign on Sunday, and Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, you have everybody talking about it. And what happened was the client has family, people that talked about his work, and they got, wow, it's working. And now, when you talk to small clusters, you have a small feedback, mm -hmm. very precise, and and really works. But for for me, a small canvas, a lot of small canvases. Mm -hmm. Also, going back to honesty, it's like having a multiple personality. I mean, yes. it's one brand. It's uh, brands uh, are losing a voice. They are talking differently to different people. And if you can compile all the messages together, they don't make a, a, a voice. It's yeah. different, it's small voices. And for me, I, I like the feedback. It's like, it's like having a huge uh, light that you project to the, to the And you can actually illuminate the whole city, and the whole city is seeing your beautiful light. And people can like it, can hate it, and so on, but you have a one big light. Now, everybody's working with more laser pens. Mm -hmm. It's like, ping, yeah, mm -hmm. ping. Nobody's seeing what's happening. It's just small laser pins getting millions of leads and small pins getting everybody. Then, when the result of this could be huge, it's like Brexit. Nobody saw the small robots targeting people mm. in small houses with people that had never been touched by a politician or a propaganda before and provoking people to react to something that in people never saw it. In the end, the people go vote and say, oh, how come? Because nobody's watching the same message, small messages. And then the outcome is surprising everybody. Mm -hmm. Trump, Bolsonaro, whatever. Yeah, and also, I mean, to discuss things with people that have a different opinion is a good thing i guess also to uh, to find uh, a common ground that if you're only talking to people who have the same opinion like you anyways uh, and one of the things that i always had a problem in the beginning of social media and i went very early in twitter facebook i had my accounts very early and i was really active in twitter and one of the complaints that i had is and one of the feelings that i had is that everybody is surrounding yourself with the news and the opinions they agree with. It's like watching own, or being surrounded by only friends that agree with you. And then you don't have, and you are isolated in the universe of people that think exactly the way you do. And then you feel comfortable, everybody feels comfortable. And then at a certain period, at a certain time, you forget that it might have, some people out there might have think different than you. And then if some message come in that is not, uh, doesn't belong to this group, it's gonna, the reaction is, is huge. You have many, many small universes, they are not connecting to each other. And they are isolated. And then 
they talk, they meet in a restaurant, they explode. People are not used anymore to the different opinion. They are not exposed to different opinions. And that's for me the huge problem of social media as well. But if you can, if you watch TV and you have uh, maybe the you can choose, you can watch, then you can agree, you cannot agree, but you have a common message. But in these small groups, oh shit, yeah. it's, it's so so tough. So everybody isolated, everybody's kind of feminine. How you call it, feminine? It's like an idea. It's there brawling and so blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And then if someone comes out, so, oh, yes, this red is nice, red, 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 red. I love red. Everybody's wearing red in this group of people. And then a guy comes out blue, he gets killed. Mm -hmm. People are not uh, forgetting to accept the diversity. Mm -hmm. And this is for me the worst thing that I have because you, that you have because now everybody's talking about diversity. The whole world is talking about diversity, but the world is becoming less diverse. Mm -hmm. Going back to advertising and social media, I think what as a creative makes it hard to work on the bigger message is because the client is overwhelmed by all those possibilities that they can post something every day. And uh, some of them feel that they need to post something not every day, but maybe four or five times a day. Then there's research and they say, okay, we found out there's something that we could react to. And then this is going to happen. I think, okay, but I don't need science to tell me that no. it's going to be Valentine's Day. I know that before. And it's, I mean, there will be a football match. There will be Christmas. And of course, the one example that I still have in mind is Oreo. They did a pretty funny thing when they reacted pretty quickly on whatever happened. Okay, they've done that. So now everybody wants to do that every time, five times a day. And that's... Um, Probably one of the reasons I think clients are struggling a bit with or more with making decisions. They're afraid to make decisions because there's so many options. Is there any advice um, that you could give me how to? Mm, I don't know. I, uh, I think clients are making decisions because so many options. But the problem is when the clients and the agencies or the creators think they are they're between the many. The 25 different options that you have, there's just one or two are right. And that's not right. You have from the 25, maybe 10 are right. So you can do it. You can do one. Choose one and go. It don't work, choose another one. Go. Be more organic and less rational. And that's the problem with the clients now. They and the problem with agency and data agencies and internet agencies are selling efficiency. And efficiency all the time kills you because you may you might not deliver. And everybody's saying this is more efficient than this, based on an algorithm. And it might be, it might be, but you never know. You never know. But if you do something else which is really nice and explosive, the algorithm will not read it. Is is the spark of creativity that you make make a, a radio spot. Amazing thing, much better than uh, Instagram feed. So it depends on post. Depends on how it's done. It's not an algorithm. It's not artificial intelligence won't tell you. But the problem is, it's becoming the technology and the algorithms are becoming so precise that is, uh, you don't need. In the end, you might not need the Spark anymore because you can take all the stuff you have. And the artificial intelligence would create anything that it might work. 
And then our job is going to be kind of uh, related to the second, to something else. It's like music. You can, I think algorithm can create some music. And maybe some nice music, but won't create Mozart. Mm. You know, the level of accept acceptance of creativity, the artificial intelligence, the algorithm you're going to provide a certain acceptance. Nice work. Oh, maybe it works for Instagram. Maybe to sell a product, that's enough. That's good. But the spark of creativity or the, the Moses of this world is going to happen very once in a while. And that you need people. But clients are not looking for Mozart. They're looking for what works. Ah, that works. It's not, they're not, they are looking, not looking for excellence. They're looking for something that works. Mm. Creative people look for excellence. Clients not. Mm. But then again, a lot of great stuff happened because of a mistake. And somebody recognized, oh, that was a mistake. But actually, that's pretty good. So Yeah, yeah. But this mistake, Maybe machines can learn to make mistakes at some point. They, no, they, they're going to learn from the mistake and see, oh, the mistake is good. And automatically, it's going to be not a mistake anymore. It's going to be something that they can use that. So artificial intelligence is worse than algorithm because artificial intelligence will change a lot of things uh, that will make or give the impression that what we do is irrelevant. At a certain point and that's complicated that's tough because if we create machines that can replicate beautiful stuff or nice stuff or efficient stuff and in the in the past if you work if you have worked before the Mac revolution to be a creative art director You have to learn a lot of time. You have to do a lot of stuff. And those few guys that could actually work typography, could work illustration, could work colors, photography, could go to a photographer that could light something and make use these huge cameras to produce beautiful stuff with high resolution. This know-how, this technology was only allowed to the few gods that have learned long years to achieve this kind of excellence. Now, if a phone, we have an uh, iPhone, I can film 4K. And the filters and the lights are okay. They're gonna be okay. They're gonna be nice. I can actually shoot a film with my iPhone. So the democracy, the technology brought the, this common level for everybody has a very good thing because everybody can actually create stuff. But at the same time, the, the excellence, the, the great stuff get kind of, um, how can I say that, uh, so normal that it's not excellent anymore. Mm. It's like taking Notre Dame, which has made me so sad. It's, it burned. It made me crazy yesterday, two days ago. It's like you have Notre Dame. And then it took about 300 years to build. So many fires and burns and changes to have this beautiful, uh, beautiful universe in the middle of Paris. Imagine that technology can actually produce a Notre Dame in five years or five days. And you can have a Notre Dame in Hawaii, you can have a Notre Dame in, in Rio, you can have a Notre Dame in New York, you can have a Notre Dame 
as monitored them in your house with the same quality, with the same, because you have a DD printer. You have the algorithm that can replicate the Notre Dame in every single corner. What's, and then you look at Notre Dame, it's like, oh, it's a Notre Dame. It's not the Notre Dame, it's a Notre Dame. What's happening in our world today is, is the same. You have good stuff being coming from everywhere, uh, even artificial intelligence and algorithm creating stuff that's like, oh, that's nice. Oh, this is, a robot did this. Oh, okay. It's less valuable because it was done for a robot or it's just becoming common sense. And then it loses value. And that's the problem which I have advertising now, is losing value. And as, as a creative, we are valued by the stuff that we make. If our stuff is not so... Everybody's doing beautiful stuff, the value is gone. So that's, so for the consumer, advertising is becoming more interesting. For the guys who is doing, maybe not. Mm. I just uh, a couple of months ago saw a documentary on Dieter Rams. The director was showing that film in Berlin. And Dieter Rams, he, he never had a smartphone. So the director told the story of the screening in Italy. And after the screening, Rams came to the director. What are those people doing with those little things? And where do all those photos go? <laughs> it's pretty funny in a way, but it's also it's a good question. I think in the documentary at one point, Rams says, because people are used to that constant flow of images and stuff, the thirst gets bigger and they just scroll down the stream and it's gone so at the same time the thirst gets bigger and that's what you're saying the value changes the value is gone the value changes and then excellence has become kind of a normal standard and um, maybe less one day two days mm -hmm. so last question so thank okay. you very okay. much for your time I hope um, it was useful. Uh, it was very useful to me, so all right, I hope uh, it's going to be useful to others when I publish it. Now you have a lot of time to spend with family, riding surfboards, painting. Is there a way to combine? What's the best way to combine family and other passions with a career in advertising? These ways, uh, I always didn't make advertising my whole life. People thought maybe the only way to get successful in advertising is that you dip, you you dive so deep in it that you have to be successful because you put so many hours in there and then and every single literature about careers and successful careers are doing about you have to give yourself 100% in. And Maybe you are fortunate enough to find a way to get ideas faster, easier, and less, with less suffering, that you can spend time with your family and doing stuff that is outside of your, of your normal job. If you can come up with ideas faster, easier, you're going to suffer less. So it's just a way of balancing your head and your intellect to be easygoing as much as I can. If you suffer too much, you're going to suffer and you cannot balance 
stuff. If you make your job about suffering, about hardship, about uh, sweating blood to get an idea, and many people think that's the only way to get successful, and many gurus say that you have to do it, you, you cannot. I chose to do exactly the opposite. I, I chose the fun out of the business. And if something doesn't, doesn't work out, uh, I do it again, I will do it again, but well, without the suffering. And I always had in my mind, if I lose a client, I get another one. And if you make a mistake, nobody's going to die, their plane's going to fall down to the ground and kill 400 people. Uh, the building won't crash down if you make a mistake. So it's a kind of an easy business. It's easier than people think it is. It's just the kind of suffering that you put in there. If you put suffering in your, your work, you get suffering back. If you put joy, you get joy. I think that's it.